once again we're in 2 Samuel and in chapter 19. 2 Samuel 19. I'm going to begin reading at verse 41 of chapter 19 and read through verse 2 of chapter 20. And I've asked Abraham if he would pray God's blessing upon the word set forth. 2 Samuel 19, at verse 41. And behold, all the men of Israel came to the king and said unto the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen thee away, and brought the king and his household over the Jordan, and all David's men with him? And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is near of kin to us. Wherefore then are ye angry for this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's cost? Or hath he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten parts in the king, and we have also more right in David than ye. Why then did ye despise us that our advice should not be first had in bringing back our king? And the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And there happened to be there a base fellow whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel went up from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah clave unto their king from the Jordan even to Jerusalem. It would be very fair and reasonable for each and every one of us that have been following this life of David if we responded to what we have just read and heard with amazement, what in the world is going on? Why are these people behaving in the way that they are behaving? They should, they ought to be rejoicing. They are returning their king to his throne. The battle that they had fought was swiftly consummated in the death of Absalom. And I would remind you in the death of at least 20,000 men we are told earlier, 20,000 men have been slain in order that David, under God, might be restored to his throne. And they should be rejoicing, they should be singing, they should be dancing as David danced before the ark, perhaps. They should be joyful. And yet, rather than that, what do we find? Bickering, resentment, Jealousy, pride, and prejudice. Prejudice and pride. These men of Israel appear to be prejudiced toward the men of Judah, and they spoke hastily in their prejudice, feeling slighted. They see what appears to them, perhaps, to be nepotism, a family clan situation. 
And they are unhappy about it, to say the least. And so they throw out these challenges to the men of Judah. Why have you done this? Why were we not consulted? The men of Judah said truly and correctly, but perhaps they didn't say it with a, the right look on their face. Perhaps they had a tone in their voice that wasn't pleasant to the men of Israel when they pointed out by way of reminder, well, David is of our tribe. We're kin with David. We's folks. A very fair argument. And yet, as I said, they perhaps spoke it with a particular tone in their voice. Perhaps we don't have recorded here every word that they said. They were reacting, it appears, in any case, pridefully. We are of the tribe of David, a little bit like what we read in, in the first epistle of Corinth, right? Oh, we're of, we're of Christ, we're of Paul, we're of Apollos, we're of Cephas. It's that same pride likely going on here. We have pride and prejudice among these folks that should be rejoicing. Rejoicing at the very least that they weren't among that 20,000 that perished in this ridiculous rebellion. One has written that we should not think it enough not to begin strife and contention. We should not satisfy ourselves that we haven't begun any contention. We haven't tried to issue forth any strife. But if others begin it, this writer says, we should not continue it by rough answers, but endeavor to make an end of it presently by mollifying the matter and yield much for the common tranquility. Really, yield? Is that the American way? I'm afraid not. In our society, we don't see very much yielding on the street, we don't see very much yielding in traffic. We don't see very much yielding anywhere we go. We certainly don't see it on newscasts. But this man says we should yield much for the common tranquility's sake. End of quote. In other words, turn the other cheek. Really? What kind of a deal is that? Whoever said that? I think we should add to that, not that I want to add to the words of Christ, of course, but we should, of course, turn the other cheek, but I think that that includes our studying to know what accommodation is and what compromise is and to learn the difference and be happy to accommodate whenever we see a way clear to it without this resistance not being afraid to yield. We have this, it seems, in our American way. We have this intolerance for yielding to anything. Well, they'll think I'm a wimp. They'll think that I'm not solid in my thinking, that I'm not certain of my position. I can't yield. What prevents us? What is it that prevents us from doing that? What is it that Imagine in your minds, recollect a memory, an instance, 
I'm confident that we've all had them where we've been engaged in a controversy and we find ourselves just not willing to let it go. What is it though? What is it inside us that won't let it go? Like these men of Israel and these men of Judah wouldn't let it go. Even to the point of engaging so soon after this rescue, engaging in combat again. Because some jerk stands up and blows a horn. Sounds like mob violence, doesn't it? All it takes is one idiot to stand up and blow his horn. And you've got the whole mob following him. But what is it inside that, that is so unready to yield? Any point of accommodation. I'm not asking anyone to compromise their beliefs or compromise their views. But there are times that we can avoid compromise by keeping our mouth shut. What is it that prevents us from doing so? Is it not the first sin? The sin that was responded, responding to those words of the evil one, you shall be as gods. Was it not pride? Is it not pride? That just stands like a concrete barrier in front of our yielding to one single point of difference. Pride. There are many enough wretched slaveries in the world one wrote, but the slavery of pride is perhaps the most mischievous and humiliating of all. I'm going to insert that these men of Judah and these men of Israel humiliated themselves because of pride and prejudice. Pride, the mother, the mother of all sin. The men of Judah reacted in pride toward the prejudice evidenced by the men of Israel. They reacted. The king is near of kin to us. Ha ha. We could almost hear someone saying, there you go again. There you go again. Bragging on your kinship with the king. But the men of Israel retort, but we have ten parts. We're ten tribes. You're only two. We have ten parts in the king. Playing the old numbers game. We have ten to your two. They try to use that. I would ask us today, do churches with 10,000 members necessarily, I say necessarily, Hold to the truth. Not saying they're not. I'm saying simply because of those numbers, does that guarantee that they're holding to the truth? It may well guarantee that they're not, but it certainly doesn't guarantee that they are. Numbers, numbers mean nothing, nothing to God. Do numbers make things right? Do numbers make individuals right because they're the greater number? That's what these men of Israel apparently believed. But do fierce words make right? Many believe that. 
do fierce words make right. They often overcome with their bellicose words and even raising their voice. Have you ever seen an argument where somebody doesn't start raising his voice? And what happens? Then the other starts raising his. And all of a sudden you have screaming. That pride, that foolishness, that prejudice, the numbers, and so on. They may overcome by raising their voice. They may overcome by the words being more fierce than the others. But that doesn't make them right either. On the one side, we have prejudice at work. And on the other side, we have pride at work. But what do they have in common here? What is it that they share? What is at work on both sides is anger. We're not told that the words of the men of Israel were fierce, but it's implied because it says the words of the men of Judah were fiercer. They were both fierce words. They were both probably passing looks at one another, provocative, anger-stirring looks, anger-stirring words, and so on. We all know how that works. We have all been engaged in it at one time or another. We have all had to confess it. Wow, I just lost my temper. No big deal, it is a big deal. It is. Anger is at work on both sides. Fierce words are not the answer to a disagreement. Might does not make right. What has God taught us about anger? What has he showed us in his word? Has he subdued us to himself with anger? Has he used anger in order to gain us to himself? Has he used anger and wrath in order to compel us to come to himself? No, he has not. We read of Christ in Psalm 85. And how is he defined there in Psalm 85? Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed in him. That's the example of God for us. Christ is an example for us. God is an example for us. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All of them exemplify mercy and truth coming together. Righteousness and peace kissing. We ought to be very grateful that his response to our rebellion wasn't like these men of Judah and these men of Israel. That he didn't respond to our rebelling against him, shaking our fist in his face. That he didn't respond with swift and certain retaliation, but rather with mercy and peace. And we need to remember that when we're dealing with others. Because others are like ourselves, made in the image of God. God gives us his example. He teaches us by example in this matter, as he often does. Moses 
along with other prophets such as David and Joel and Jonah and Nahum, all attest to this virtue as one belonging especially to Jehovah. Slow to anger. If he wasn't slow to anger, we would all be gone. You remember that famous confrontation, if I can call it that, when Moses asked God, show me thy glory. And what was the response? Merciful and gracious and what? Slow to anger. And abundant in loving kindness and truth. He is slow to anger. He's our example, is he not? He is slow to anger. Mankind, not so much. We are usually quick to strike back. We must, each of us, admit that. And we've been given grace, if we've been given new hearts, we've been given grace to restrain that. But must we not confess, I will, that even when that grace restrains me from responding physically, my heart is, is not right. It wants to respond. It still wants to react. Many times we are quick to strike back. With a fist, maybe. With a word. With a look. But even as we are called in the scriptures to be holy, for or because Jehovah our God is holy, we are also called to be slow to anger because God is slow to anger. Solomon speaks of this mandate, if you will, in Proverbs frequently. That as God is slow to anger, so we ought to be slow to anger. And we are instructed by Solomon in the Proverbs to be slow to anger. He tells us in Proverbs 14, 29, he that is slow to anger is of a great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. He exalts folly when he's hasty of spirit. In Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turneth away wrath. A soft answer. Don't you believe that Jesus gave soft answers almost all the time? You remember when the Pharisees and the chief priests sent those officers of the chief priests off to bring Christ back. They came back without him. And the priest said, what's the deal? And these officers said, he spake as never man spake. Now surely that means the content of what he said, but I believe that it means also the way. No man ever spake as he. Our example God the Father, our example, Jesus Christ. He was indeed the meek and lowly one, was he not? And yet we seem to, in the remaining sin in us, 
seems unwilling so often to be meek and lowly. Why is that? Why don't we want to be like Christ in that? You remember the account that we looked at a few years ago in 1 Samuel when David was hiding from Saul in the cave of Adullam and in the woods and so on. In his presence there with his men, I think he had about 400 or 600 men, his presence in that area, that neighborhood, if you will, was keeping safe from the Philistines and safe from others, bandits and so on, keeping safe the flocks of Nabal. You remember that churlish Nabal? And David sent a few of his men to Nabal. We could, we could use some grub, Nabal. Our provisions are low. We could use some help here. And Nabal sent those men of David back with the words, Who is David? What is David that I should give him anything? Terrible, churlish, selfish words. But what was David's response? The man after God's own heart dropped his guard again. What was his response? Something like Sheba's. Doesn't say he blew a horn, but he said, gird on your swords, every man. We're going to go and clean up on that guy. He responded with a hasty spirit. He was going to go and avenge himself at Nabal. The scriptures tell us that these such things are giving place to the devil. Paul speaks in Ephesians when he says, be ye angry and sin not, let not the sun go down on your wrath, neither give place to the devil. That wrath, that anger is giving place to the devil. We could say you're doing what Adam and Eve did, you're giving place to the devil. It is grieving the Holy Spirit. It's contrary, as we've already alluded, it's contrary to the mind and example of Christ who said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. I'm not hasty in heart. I'm meek and lowly in heart. Follow me. Are we following him in that? I'm not pretending that it's easy. It's depicted by Paul and others that we're engaged in a warfare. Nobody ever said it was going to be easy. It is inconsistent with our profession of the gospel where we're exhorted to put to death your members which are upon the earth. And what are some of those members? Anger, wrath, malice, railing. Works of the flesh. We're exhorted to put them down. Also, the works of the flesh are these strife, jealousies, and again, wraths, factions, divisions. Isn't that what we see here? between the men of Judah and the men of Israel, factions, divisions. I'm of Paul, I'm of, I'm of David, I'm of Judah, I'm of Israel. Oh, we've got 10 to your two. Factions, divisions. 
Again in Proverbs, a wrathful man stirreth up contention, but he that is slow to anger appeaseth strife. Have you ever found yourself consciously trying to appease strife? I think I'd have a hard time numbering very many occasions. More often than not, we think we're appeasing strife if we just throw down our book or throw down our whatever we have in our hand and walk off. That doesn't appease strife, does it? And it's folly. The man that's slow to anger is also one we're told in the Proverbs is better than the mighty. That's being better than the mighty. Yes, that man's words may be fierce. That man may be twice as big as you. But this, being slow to anger, is better than the mighty. Better than mighty words, better than mighty deeds. It's better than the mighty being slow to anger. He that ruleth his spirit is better than he that taketh a city. Wow. Ever tried to take a city? It's a better occupation to rule your spirit. And to be slow to anger is what the scriptures are teaching us. The discretion of a man, again in Proverbs, maketh him slow to anger. And it is his glory to pass over a transgression. It is to his glory. It is his glory to pass over a transgression. Can't you let it go? It is his glory, and one wrote, so it must be, because it is likeness to God. That's glory. <coughs> and again, it is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife. But every fool will be quarreling. Surely there are occasions when we can keep aloof, if I understand that correctly, we can avoid it. <laughs> Is there anything wrong with that? You afraid you're gonna be called chicken because you don't keep down the sidewalk when you know there's strife coming the other way? Keep aloof from strife. Avoid it if you can. But if you can't, be slow to anger and demonstrate love and forbearance. Well, what was the result here with these people? We know what the result was. Anyone acquainted with human nature might have foretold it, one says, with reliable certainty. A proneness on one side to take offense. Isn't that what it's all about? Being quick to take offense. We need to learn how to be slow to take offense and slow to give offense. And those are hard lessons, and they're not easily learned, but that's what we need to learn if we want to be like Christ, if we want to follow God, if we want to obey, we need to cultivate these things. And, and, you know, get away from that readiness to think, oh, we've been overlooked, like those men of Israel were griping about. Oh, we've been overlooked. Why weren't we asked? Why weren't we given that? Why didn't we have that privilege? Why didn't we get that honor? And we take offense at being overlooked. And there's this readiness to retaliate. You know, the old American way. 
Don't get mad, get even. I mean, this is what we witness in children, isn't it? Little, little children. That's what we witness in them. <laughs> Retaliate. Like little children, retorting angrily, the result is a quarrel. Just like we have here in our text, the result is a quarrel. If both sides are going to be angry, and no one, neither side is going to attempt to show forbearance, neither one is going to try to be slow to anger, there's going to be a quarrel. Sadly, it's in the churches so often. I mean, how many independent Baptist churches are there? How many Presbyterian denominations are there? Really? Oh, well, I didn't want the carpet that color. It said, we need to cultivate the possession of having the hide of a rhinoceros. We need to try to have the hide of a rhinoceros. That things just bounce off. That things just slide off. That they don't penetrate. We should be gentle as a lamb. I don't have to explain that to you, do I? We should be gentle as a lamb. There's a man in our neighborhood I don't know him well. I know his son and his daughter-in-law better. But we were told several years ago that the man's got the onset of Alzheimer's. We see him walking around our neighborhood. I don't know what he's got. I mean, he's supposed to have had the onset nine years ago or something, and still see him walking around the neighborhood. But I've told Barbara a number of times, you know what, that guy's the happiest man. in the whole neighborhood. (laughs) He doesn't take offense at anything. He doesn't give offense at anything. I mean, he's in this world of his own. I don't know what he's able to think or anything, but he's happy. We need to cultivate that rhinoceros-like hide. We need to learn how to turn the other cheek. We need to learn how not to be easily offended. We need to learn how not to be offended at all. Frankly, now I know we have an issue in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, with the uh, chapter 13 with the love does this and love doesn't do that. And the King James, and I have a hard time getting it out of my head because I did a long time ago, a long, long time ago, use the King James. I'm not deprecating it when I say that. But it says love is not easily offended. And I give you that easily is in italics. I don't know italics. I don't know why they had to leave it there because it takes the sting and the bite away from what Paul is saying, from what the Holy Spirit is saying. Happily, I found that the New American Standard, the American Standard and the New King James even, don't have those italics. They don't have easily. 
Love is not provoked. End of discussion. Love is not provoked. Now you may be provoked, but what does that mean? What has Paul said? And how has he explained it? Well, it means that you're not behaving lovingly. It doesn't mean that you never love. It doesn't mean that you never have loved. It doesn't mean that you don't love God, but it means you're not loving in that behavior. Because love is not provoked. The tongue. I'm going to submit that the tongue got in the way with these men of Israel and the men of Judah. Even if their hearts were right, and they probably weren't, because the heart guides the tongue, doesn't it? Their tongues got in the way. James reminds us of this in his third chapter of his epistle. And I've only brought forward one verse. That verse, it goes along with the others that James has to say. He says, Behold, how much wood is kindled by how small a fire. How much wood is kindled by how small a fire. You know, we all know it. It only takes one word. And you're at war. And if we don't know that today, we'll never know it. But in our personal relationships, it only takes one word. And a relationship is broken. It only takes one sideways glance. And the love of years is dissolved. The tongue is a fire. The world of iniquity. And to the point it's untamed. It ought not to be untamed. These men didn't even try to tame their tongues as far as we can see. Or their ears when they heard that idiot Sheba blow his horn and call them to battle. We don't have any part in David. A worthless man a worthless man deviseth mischief. In Proverbs again, and in his lips there is a scorching fire. The tongue is a fire, world of iniquity, one man wrote. Mice and matches cause over 1,200 fires each year in New York City. Keep in mind that was written 100 years ago. Mice and men. Mice and matches, rather, cause over 1,200 fires. He goes on to say, Nero set fire to Rome to see the grandeur of the spectacle, and he fiddled while the city burned. Similar irresponsibility is often seen in the reckless use of the tongue. Do you get what this man's saying? You're playing with matches if you don't guard your tongue. But rather, and this is, this is the beautiful part, this exhortation that Paul gives us in Philippians, have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. And it's not that mind that we've been looking at. It's not that failure to be slow to anger. God has been long-suffering. Account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation Ought we not to be long-suffering toward others? Again, keep our tongues in our heads. 
And I remind you of that Proverbs 15:1, a soft answer turneth away wrath, and that never so never man so spake as Christ. That was his testimony. Blessed are the meek, he said. Blessed are the peacemakers. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus is the meek and lowly one. He is the prince of peace. How unlike Christ we so often are. When Peter writes, he who was, when he was reviled, reviled not again. How many of us have been able to manage that? I know it's not been often for me. And I'm thankful for God the Holy Spirit convicting me and bringing me to repentance and giving forgiveness, but that still, I didn't do it right. One has written, Thomas Scott, grand old man in the days of John Newton in England he said alas that it must be added that whilst the king himself is so plenteous in mercy speaking of God speaking of Christ the king capital K himself is so plenteous in mercy many of his professed subjects are envious and contentious with each other and quarrel about the most trivial concerns which prevents much good, does immense mischief, and occasions lamentable scandals. May he at length teach all who are called by his name. And that's another thing. We're giving the world, we're giving people on Buist Avenue, we're giving Greenville by our appearance, by our behavior. We're identified with Christ and they see us. What do they imagine Christ is like when they see us? May he at length teach all who are called by his name to follow the example of his humility and meekness and to rejoice in seeing the common cause promoted. Let who will engross the credit of being the instrument and may all endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, Thomas Scott said. Let who will engross the credit. Who cares who gets the credit, whether it's you, me, or the guy down the street, or the guy in the other state, that God might be magnified, that Christ might be exalted. He who, even while we were yet sinners, loved us so much that he died for us. Let him have all the glory. Look at Philippians chapter 2 as I close. I don't usually say that because then you tip off people that you're going to come to a close pretty quick. And then they, they will brace themselves for the, to resist the altar call. When I'm, I'm not giving an altar call. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2. You're familiar with it, I'm sure. If there is therefore any exhortation in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any tender mercies and compassions, make full my joy that ye be of the same mind, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Do you get it? Do you get it? 
if there's, if there's any exhortation in Christ, consolation, love, fellowship, any tender mercies, be of the mind of Christ, having the same love of one mind, doing nothing through faction or through vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, each counting other, instead of going to verse 5, which is glorious and beautiful, but I mean, he's giving down, he's giving us this picture of what we are to be like and what we are not to be like. And then he says in verse 5, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that's what this message is about, really. I didn't see anything else in the passage with the men of Israel and men of Judah except those fierce words. But it evolved into this. By God's grace, have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank Thee this day. We thank Thee and thank Thee for the privilege of being able to thank Thee as Thy children bought with a price, the blood of Christ, and granted the spirit of adoption. And we do cry, Abba, continue to bless us this day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd stand for the benediction. From Ephesians 6, 23 and 24, peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Amen.